There exists a woman who is so vile and so disgusting that she used her children to cover up the fact that she murdered two of her other children. This is a case of Theresa Noor. Welcome to Enter the Dark. Hello and welcome to Enter the Dark. I am Jan. With me, as always, is the man who gets the police called on him on a first date. That's not a joke. It happened. It's Les. That was lack of communication on her part. And it was also by her parents, not the girl. Yeah, So it was by the girl's parents, just you, to clarify. Yeah, and it wasn't anything to do with his eyes or anything. It was just a lack of communication of where she didn't tell anyone where she was. But you okay, Les, though? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. Yeah, I'm good, all right. good, good. Charge has been dropped. Yeah, yeah, there's the, inf- well, there was no charges, it was more an ongoing investigation. Like Jimmy Savile. So, yes, tonight we have another Patreon super request for you. This one is by um, Amy, Emma and Jet Coleman. This one is on the case of Theresa Noor. Speaking of Patreon, Les, let's give a shout out to our Patreons. Do we it. have Hannah Blue Harrington, Amanda Champagne, Astoria Crowley, Amy, Emma, and Jack Coleman, Sasha Johnson, Lisa Dempsey, Marie T. Jensen, Casey the Cannibal, Misty Day, Becky Louise, Izzy from the Clink, Jules Henderson, James Harrington, Mr. Crow, Richard Vaccarelli, Michelle Hudson, and Alicia Llewellyn. Thank you all for supporting us. If you do wish to support us, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark. If you hit a $10 tier or more, you can request for us to cover a case like Amy Emmer and Jet did. So, this is the case of Theresa Noor. Les, going to make a stab in the dark here. You're not heard of it? He's no. You have, to, you have to say no, Les, because this is a, this is a you know, audible medium. So they can't see you shaking your head. Yeah, but I said no. Yeah, I know, but I... Because her name's Theresa Noor. Listen, give it a minute. You haven't got the know-how. Right, so, <laughs> so then, let's get started. Theresa Jimmy Francine Cross. Let's just stop there. Jimmy? That's got three first names. Three first names? Why Jimmy, though? I don't know. Jimmy. 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 She was born on... Jimmy! Mo- <laughs> that was Timmy. I know it was. Jimmy was like, ooh, we're great performers. <laughs> um, she was born on March the 12th, 1946. Her father, Jim Cross, was an assistant cheesemaker at Sacramento's Golden State Dairy, and her mother, Swanee Gay Cross, worked at the local lumber company. Let's, I'm just going to unpack this now. So her dad is an assistant cheesemaker, right? And her mum works at a lumber company, whose name is Swanee Gay Cross, Right? I'm not even... I, I, let's just move on. I can't unpack this two minutes into it. Apparently, apparently, you've seen that meme. The way to a girl's heart is by offering her cheese. No, that's a thing no, from like can, a quarter. You can fascinate a girl. Woman by giving her you know, cheese. Cheese, yeah. yeah. It's true. It is true. So cheese, not chocolate. It's cheese. Cheese. Bit camembert. Anyway, um, Theresa had an older sister, Rosemary, who was born in 1944, and two older step siblings, William and Clara Tapp. The stepchildren were from Swanee's first marriage, which unexpectedly ended with the death of her husband in 1939. 
The Cross family prospered over the years, and by the early 1950s, they were able to move out of their small Sacramento bungalow and purchase a large house in Rio Linde, California. Nonetheless, their happiness was short-lived, and sometime during the late 1950s, Jim Cross fell ill with Parkinson's disease. He could no longer work and was forced to quit his job. Following his diagnosis, Jim fell into a deep depression and often took his anger out on his children. According to friends of the family, Teresa was a loner and jealous of his sister Rosemary. If they weren't fighting over a neighbourhood boy, they were competing for their mother's attention. Because Parkinson's the one where you're a bit shaky. Yeah. Is that what, what what's his name? For Michael that? J. Fox. Michael J. Yeah. Fox. And didn't um, Muhammad Ali have it as yeah. well? Yeah. You were waiting for me to make a joke then, weren't you? It's not coming. Teresa was especially fond of her mother, and the outsiders felt that Swanee favoured Teresa over Rosemary. In retrospect, the afternoon of March 2nd, 1961, probably affected Teresa more than anyone could have imagined. Teresa was escorting her mother to a local store that day when her mother suddenly collapsed. As Teresa held the woman in her arms, Swanee breathed her last breath and died. What were they doing again? Getting the shop. Literally, that's it. Yeah, she just clapped. What a shit way you go. Her cause of death was a congestive heart failure, and on March 6, 1961, Swanee Cross was buried at Sunset Lawn Cemetery. So she was just walking. Boom! Heart went. Looking at the looking at the ready meals. Well, it's the 60s, isn't it? So they still had TV dinners. Yeah, no, but they weren't looking at They were just on the way to the shops, like going buy some gingham or something. I don't know. Buy some gingham. Yeah, it's still know. shit though. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, anyone's mother falling down, dropping down dead in front of them, holding them in their arms while they breathe their last breath is a bit depressing, isn't it? It's a bit embarrassing though, as well, because that really makes a scene, doesn't it? Yeah, no, well, but then at least you get the attention. Probably. I don't want the attention. I'd just be like, anywhere else, mum, you've ruined my day. Following the death of her mother, Teresa fell into a deep depression and from which she never fully seemed to recover. Without Swanee's income, Jim Cross could no longer afford to keep the family home and he was forced to sell it. Bit by bit, every piece of security Teresa had was taken away from her. With her life in disarray, Teresa latched onto the first man that walked into her life. Clifford Clyde Sanders, good name, was five years older than Teresa when the two first met at the mutual friend's house. Within weeks, the young couple were in love and discussing marriage. Whether Teresa was actually loved Clifford or simply wanted security in her life is anyone's guess. Regardless, on September the 29th, 1962, Teresa Jimmy Cross became Teresa Jimmy Sanders. Sounds like a country singer, doesn't it? Jimmy Sanders. Teresa Jimmy Sanders. Shortly after the wedding, Teresa dropped out of junior high school and the couple moved into a one-bedroom apartment in the North Highlands District of California. Woo! Pedo, pedo. It did not take long for the marriage to start going downhill. Teresa was very possessive of Clifford and kept him on a short leash. On July the 16th, 1963, Teresa gave birth to their first child, Howard Clyde Sanders. Things seemed to settle down for a while, but eventually Teresa reverted back to her old ways. Howard was unhappy in the marriage, and if it had not been for Teresa's second pregnancy in the spring of 1964, he probably would have left her. Their one-bedroom apartment was too small for another child, and the growing family moved into a small white house just outside of Sacramento. While Teresa and Clifford's marriage had its ups and downs, tempers came to boiling point on June the 22nd, 1964. Rather than spend the day with her and the baby, Clifford went out drinking with his friends. Later that evening, he strolled in drunk, and Teresa boiled over. She berated him for neglecting his family and wasting their much-needed money on booze. Clifford was in no mood to argue and ended her tirade with a single punch to the face. I mean, it's direct. It is, yeah. 
<clears throat> Teresa went to the police station and filed assault and battery charges against him. But when it came to arrest him, she refused to sign the papers and the charges were dropped. Ah, uh, you see, that's bullshit, that is. Doing shit like that. Yeah, you just like the shit will go Either fucking commit, commit, and fucking grass him up, stupid bitch. Sorry, I'm not victim blaming. Uh, she's not a victim, really. We'll get into it. I mean... I'd punch her in the face. Sounds like he'd got to the end of his tether. Just like I was, I was blowing off steam, and you've I've come in. Les, stop projecting. Clifford had a huge argument. These are the kind of women Les dates. Yeah, he has never punched a woman though. Just I've never punched a woman, not once, not once, not unless they asked. Clifford had a huge argument with Teresa on his birthday on July the 5th, 1964. I'll cut it, Les, don't worry. Teresa accused him of infidelity and he decided he'd had enough. The following day, Clifford packed his bags and told Teresa that he was leaving her. Fortunately, he never made it out of the door. Teresa went into a rage, grabbed a rifle and shot her husband. Clifford stumbled backwards and fell down dead. Gold police officer Walter Frolicky was one of the first officers on the scene. Walter what? Frolicky. Frolicky? Frolicky. I did a flourish to it. Yeah. I grabbed a gun to make to keep him from hitting me and it went off, Teresa said. Clifford's body was lying face down in the doorway of the kitchen and on the opposite end of the room. Frolick found the rifle leaning against the wall. Frolick arrested Teresa and transported her to Sacramento County Jail. Baby Howard was then taken to stay with one of Teresa's relatives. The headline on the July the 7th Sacramento Bee Daily newspaper announced Murder charge is due in gold death. The first paragraph read, Deputy District Attorney Donald Dorfman said he planned to file a murder charge today against 18-year-old Mrs. Teresa Sanders of Galt in the deal rifle slaying of her husband. Clifford Sanders, 23, was slain yesterday morning in the couple's small Galt home. Investigators reported the bullet had apparently grazed off his left wrist and lodged in his heart. I mean, that's a fluke shot, isn't it? That's one in a million. Yeah. She grabbed it, shot, and went poof. In many ways, it sounds like by trying to defend himself, he was the architect of his own demise, though. He was just trying to leave. You know, he's in his early 20s. She's 18. Got two kids. I've had, a, I've had enough of this shit. Oh, no, you haven't. On August the 4th, 1964, Teresa entered a plea of innocent by reason of self-defence in a Sacramento courtroom. Her trial was scheduled to begin three weeks later in Judge Charles W. Johnson's courtroom. Deputy District Attorney Donald Dorfman wanted a first-degree murder conviction, and on August 30th, 1964, he began his opening statements to the jury. Dorfman accused Teresa of murdering her husband in cold blood and insisted she had concocted the allegations of self-defence in order to spare herself a prison sentence. The murder, in Dorfman's opinion, was committed because of Teresa's suspicions that her husband was committing adultery. Afterwards, Teresa's attorney, Robert Zarek, argued that Teresa acted out of self-defence and was only protecting herself and her unborn child. One of the first witnesses called to the stand was Dr. Arthur Wallace, the man who performed Clifford Sanders' autopsy. Wallace testified there were no powder burns on the body and blood tests revealed no presence of alcohol. He described the injuries to Sanders' body and testified that the .3030 calibre slug had passed through Sanders' wrist before embedding itself in his heart. It was my assumption, and I believe this is very correct, that the deceased apparently had his hand in some position in front of his chest. The fact that it lodged within the soft tissues of the heart shows that its momentum was considerably slowed when it struck the chest. Following Wallace's testimony, a criminologist testified that the 30 caliber rifle found at the scene was the murder weapon. 
Police Chief Walter Froley described the crime scene and events leading up to Trazer's arrest. Wrapping up the prosecution side, Dorfman questioned several of Sanders' relatives in an effort to show the victim was not a violent or abusive person. Surprisingly, Trazer briefly took the stand and testified on her own behalf. She told the jury a tearful story of physical abuse and claimed her husband was a violent alcoholic. Mental health counsellor Dr. Leroy Walter described Trazer as anxious, remorseful and frightened. It was his opinion that she acted in self-defence and was not capable of committing a cold-blooded and calculated crime. Friends and relatives enforced Walter's testimony and described Trazer as a sweet young girl who did not know what she was getting into when she married Sanders. Closing arguments began on September 21st, 1964. Dorfman repeated his opening statements and accused Trazer of murdering her husband out of jealousy. This is clearly premeditated first-degree murder, he told the jury. Not every murderer can look like the witch in Snow White. She is 18 and pregnant, but that doesn't overcome the fact that she maliciously shot and killed her husband without provocation. On September the 22nd, after deliberating for 1 hour 45 minutes, the jury found Teresa Jimmy Francine Sanders not guilty. Dorfman was drumstruck by the verdict. Whether he realised it at the time or not, the loss would eventually come back to haunt him. After earning her acquittal, Teresa regained custody of her son Howard and moved in with her family friends. She was four months pregnant her marriage to Clifford may not have been happy, but at least it provided her with a sense of belonging. Now, at just 18, she was alone and desperately seeking stability. To cope, Teresa turned to alcohol and began drowning her sorrows at a local American Legion hall. It was there that she met Estelle Lee Thornsbury, an army veteran who had suffered a debilitating blow two years earlier when swimming accident left him a quadriplegic. Nonetheless, Thornsbury's disability didn't seem to bother Teresa and the two began dating. What sort of swimming accident? A debilitating blow, so I'm imagining he... What kind of fucking extreme swimming was that? Possibly somebody... Water fucking polo. Or somebody dived in and hit him, or he dived in and hit the rock or something. You ever seen that film, The Wedding Crashers, where they're doing water polo? And he spikes the ball. They fucking twats this girl up the nose. Yeah. <laughs> Just fucking blood everywhere. <laughs> That's what happened. I don't think it... Bloody nose would leave you a quadriplegic. Some people are just a bit willowy. Okay. On March 13th, 1965, Teresa gave birth to Sheila Gay Sanders. What's with the gay? What is with the gay? I mean, not in a homophobic way. I mean, it means happy, doesn't it? Yeah. What was with fucking Swanee, though? I mean, in the UK, like, Swanee is slang for the toilet, isn't it? Wasn't there also that guy who filmed, I think it was a true story, he was like, a white guy who used to black up and sing a song like Swanee and stuff like that. I, I swear it's a true story. We'll put a picture in. I'm not putting blackface up, no. <laughs> Even though the child was not his, Thornsbury doted on her and treated her as his own. Deeply in love with Teresa, he suggested they all move in together and live as a family. Teresa agreed and a few weeks later they rented out a small apartment. In the beginning, Thornsbury enjoyed living arrangements, but his feelings began to change when Teresa started treating him as a babysitter rather than a love interest. With the relationship already rocky, things came to an end a few months later. That's a shit babysitter though, he's a quadriplegic. I know, yeah, I was thinking that, you know, you want to get somebody who... Who's a bit more active. You're doing nothing with these kids while I can't fucking move, like... Yeah, you know, at least... I just nod at him. It was a few weeks later when Thornsbury discovered Teresa was cheating on him with his best friend. Following a heated argument, Teresa packed her belongings along with most of Thornsbury's and moved in with friends. I'm I, I'm going to make this joke. 
It's not like he can run after and stop her, is it? No, he's not. Imagine that, though. She's like, what? Like, just sitting there, sitting there, like, downstairs, as they're, like, fucking upstairs. Just this single solitary tear <laughs> as you're hearing it all. <laughs> can never pleasure her like he can. What, what, what's he doing down there? Arsing around. <laughs> Do you feel bad? He can't... He's hearing all this. No, it turns me on more, to be honest. <laughs> We're terrible people. Shortly after a breakup with Thornsbury, Theresa set her sights on Robert Nor, a private in the Marine Corps. Oh, no, 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 no. Nor in the Marine Corps. Nor in the Marine Corps. <laughs> the two began dating, and within a few months, Theresa was pregnant and began discussing marriage. In February 1966, Nor was shipped off to Vietnam. Shortly after his arrival, Nor was on patrol when a stray bullet struck him in the shoulder. The injury was not serious, but frightening just the same. Frightening just the same. I mean, oh, you're in fucking Nam, and you, you get shot by a stray bullet. You're gonna shit yourself. You're gonna shit yourself a bit, but it's like, I mean, compared to some of the shit that went down in Nam. Oh no, yeah. You weren't there, man. You weren't there. Neither was I. <laughs> I didn't lose my legs in Vietnam for this. <laughs> You've got youth to both your legs. Like I said, I didn't use my legs in Vietnam. <laughs> After a brief stay in a field hospital, he was back on his feet and patrolling the jungle again. But just weeks later, Nora was again shot. This time, the bullet hit him in the side, but barely penetrated the skin, earning him another brief stay in the hospital. He's a lucky motherfucker, this guy. But his luck was running out, Les. A few months later, while walking across a bridge in the middle of nowhere, it suddenly blew up. Shrapnel from the explosion ripped through his arms and legs, and the explosion threw him back into the ground. Luckily for Nor, though, there would be no more close calls. His latest injuries earned him a trip stateside and he spent several months recovering at Oakland Naval Hospital. By June 1966, Tracer was seven months pregnant and eager to settle down with Nor. On July the 9th, um, the young couple drove to Nevada and exchanged vows in front of a local judge. It was Robert's first marriage and Tracer's second. Both were eager to settle into their new roles and rented a small apartment in Sacramento. Two months later, on September the 27th, 1966, Theresa gave birth to her third child, a girl. Theresa named her Susan Marlene Knorr. Less than three months later, she was pregnant again. And on September the 15th, 1967, she bore Robert his first son, William Robert Knorr. A second son, Theresa's fifth child, was born on December 31st, 1968. Keeping her older half-brother in mind, Theresa named the boy Robert Wallace Knorr. It's like fucking shelling peas for her now, isn't it? It's yeah. Like thunk, thunk, thunk. Also, I'm just thinking, like, no. They're them who do the stockpots, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, that's what I got at Jeffrey. Yeah. They got the know-how. Know-how. Hey, ah! Robert continued to serve in the military, but his diminished abilities left him few options, and he was forced to work as a burial escort. The job wasn't without its perks, though, but it often required Robert to leave his family on a moment's notice and travel halfway around the country. I want to know what the perks are. Of a burial escort. Do you get go halfway around the country on a moment's notice? Nice uniform. All you got to do is salute, put a flag on, hand it to a widow. Fuck off. You get paid for it. You got a good He's, pension. Imagine so. He's in the army, ain't he? Not going to give you a shit pension. Obvious. Easy work if you can get it, yeah. I guess. Theresa disliked Robert's new job and regularly voiced her opposition. Just as she did with Clifford, she began accusing him of infidelity. Tempers often flared and Theresa took her anger out on the children. 
According to Dennis McDougall, author of the... (laughs) (laughs) What is it with you today? Dennis McDougall? Yeah. He was the author of the book, Mother's Day. Trazer would often punish them by forcing them to sit on the floor without moving. If they budged an inch or moved an eye, she would become angry and slap them. He sounds like a Thomas the Tank Engine train. We've moved past him. Whenever that didn't work, she would lock them in a closet or force feed them until they were ready to collapse. Shit. Mm. Again, the chokey. No, literally, she would just put, like, feed them food until, like, they were coughing and full and couldn't eat anymore. That's horrible. By June 1969, Robert could no longer take Teresa's allegations and sudden outbursts. Leaving his children behind, he packed up what few belongings he had and moved out. Teresa retaliated by filing for divorce on grounds of extreme cruelty, but a few weeks later they reconciled and she dismissed her charges. Regardless, as much as Robert wanted to make the marriage work, it was far too late. One year later, Teresa again filed for divorce, and in, in an ironic twist, Judge Charles W. Johnson, the same judge that presided over Trazer's murder trial, granted the couple a divorce on June the 3rd, 1970. Two months later, Trazer gave birth to her sixth and final child and named the girl after herself, Trazer Marie Noor. Following the divorce, Robert tried to visit his children, but Trazer didn't know anything to do with him and repeatedly denied him the right to see them. Robert eventually gave up and remarried. Trazer didn't stay single for long and soon began dating a railway worker named Ronald Pullman. In 1971, they married and shortly after they purchased a house in East Sacramento. To outsiders, they seemed like a perfect family, but before long, history began to repeat itself and Trazer began treating Ronald as a possession rather than a partner. Just as she did with Estelle Thornsbury, Trazer began leaving her children at home with Ronald while she went out and partied. Eventually, she stopped coming home altogether. Ronald was convinced she was seeing another man and filed for divorce. On September 27th, 1972, with Judge Charles W. Johnson presiding again, the divorce was granted. With her newfound freedom, Teresa spent the majority of her time drinking at the American Legion Hall in Rio Linda. It was there that she met 59-year-old Chet Harris, a copy desk editor at the Sacramento Union newspaper. The two seemed to hit it off well and were married on August 23rd, 1976, just three days after their first meeting. Ugh, it's like, how many divorces have you had? Well, one husband died, and I've had, like, another divorce, and then I left a quadriplegic. Uh, eh, do you want to get married? Sure. No red flags here. Yeah, with all the kids as well. So six kids now? Jesus. What a simps out there. There is. It's, it must have been shackling season. Shackling season. It did. When it ever, when, like now, when it's cold outside, it starts getting dark earlier, you'll see lads getting up together. Oh, but no, no, I love you, babe. Let's get married. Oh no, I'll look after your kids like they're my own. And uh, you just quit so they've got somewhere to stay. Shackling season. You know what they should do? Get a job, grow up, and not use women. That, but also, if their only option is to die on the street, they should do that. Like in fucking Judge Dredd. Yeah. Go out into the fucking scorched earth. Anyway, it was. Into Im- the wild. <laughs> it was immediately obvious to Teresa that she had made yet another bad mistake. Shortly after moving Oh, Cal Surprise! After three days. Shortly after moving in with her new husband, she discovered that one of his favourite hobbies was taking photographs of nude women. I mean, if you would have dated a while, I think this would have come up. Yeah. Rather than just getting, I'll get on with you, yeah. Let's get married. So was the Legion Hall as well. That seems to be a like a, a like a hunting ground. Yeah, well, you know, cheap beer, ain't it? Soldiers. She's young, you know. She's got six kids, so you know, she's probably like able to get a fist up her or something. So, you know what I mean? Call a 
Fistino. Fistino. Fistino, wear like a glove puppet. In fact, his bedroom <laughs> walls were covered with them. He wanted Teresa to pose for him, but she refused. While Teresa may have hated her new husband, her daughter Susan grew close to him and the two would often spend hours together working on jigsaw puzzles and discussing mythology. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, that's a good evening. Maybe not the jigsaw puzzles, because they get boring after a while. Yeah, but if you're working on them together with someone, and you're like, oh yeah, let's do that, it'd be nice. And discuss it could be jigsaw puzzles on mythology, Les. It could be, but... He just seems like the sort of person who's like, okay, we've got we've got all the edges in. Can No, that seems like you. And just quit. Well, You've I've, never completed a jigsaw in your life, have you? I've never completed a jigsaw in my life. No. No, I've not. But like I know what I know this man's psychology and I'd be like, it's all about compromise. We've done all the edges. We're getting a little bit into the middle. Strip off. And let me take a photo of your snatch. This is his do- his stepdaughter. Oh shit! No shit! God no! Different person. Let me just clarify. The relationship I've, I've... between her daughter and Harris angered Teresa. While she wasn't particularly close to any of her children, she didn't feel that anyone else should step in and try to assume her role. On November the twenty second, nineteen seventy six, two months after the marriage began, Teresa filed for divorce. <sighs> With Judge Charles Johnson once again presiding. The paper became final on December the 17th, 1976. This judge. You'd think he'd maybe go becoming a murder. bit of a habit. He's, like, you know, he's cleader of murder, done two divorces for it, right? No, this is the third divorce. Third, yeah. Yeah, third divorce for it, right? And he's going to be like, well, this one's after three days. Just stop marrying people. Stop marrying. Put your kids in care or something and stop marrying people. It's one of Johnson's last court appearance, and he retired two months later. He got sick of his shit, didn't he? He was like, if I see that bitch one more time. Following her latest divorce, Teresa's children noticed a remarkable change in her behaviour. She started to drink even more and began putting on a great deal of weight. Her attitude became worse with each day and the abuse towards her children severely increased. When we were kids, my mum beat the shit out of us a lot, her daughter Terry told Dennis McDougall years later. Terry's, um, Teresa, her daughter she named after herself. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. If we hugged our mum too much... It was like, who were we trying to convince? That we loved her or she loved us. On the other hand, if we didn't hug and kiss her and tell her we loved her, then we didn't love her and we were evil children. We were demon seeds that had been given to her by Bob Noor. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that for Because it's hilarious. What a hilarious sentence. Just imagine her there. Swigging from a bottle of like fucking Jack I'm Daniels. glad you can find this chat this child's abuse. It's just a funny sentence. It's like not your demon seeds, you're the spawn of the devil, you're the demon seeds of that Jack Nor. Terry's older brothers, <laughs> William and Robert, hell. agreed. Sometime when I around when I turned ten, she started becoming abusive and real short tempered, William said. She stopped going out, seeing friends at all, on any level. She got rid of the telephone because she didn't want any people calling. We weren't allowed to have anybody inside the house. When I was growing up, I hated the Brady Bunch because I knew nobody lived like that, said Robert. I knew that because I knew what my family was like. Nothing could be more different from the truth in the bullshit TV show. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically, but what's worse is we didn't know it was an insane asylum. The more Teresa drank, the crueler she became. On one occasion, she even threw steak knives at her children. 
During another of her binges, she grabbed Terry by the arm and held a 22 caliber pistol to the girl's head. For months afterwards, her daughter suffered terrifying nightmares. As if the mental torture was not enough, Tracer started beating the children on a regular basis, forcing them to take turns holding each other down while she administered blows from above. Jesus Christ. Tracer eventually got the idea in her head that Chester Harris had turned his daughter Susan into a witch. It's not known where this wild idea first came from, but Susan began taking advantage of it and would use it against her mother. She would regularly say that Harris was going to initiate her into his cult by deflowering her in the name of Satan. This probably wasn't... I'm, I'm getting that this wasn't a wise idea. Yeah, it's probably not the best idea. The stories did not serve to spare Susan any abuse and she began suffering the worst of Tracer's blows. Eventually, Susan ran away from home. Her freedom was short-lived and she was eventually picked up by a truancy officer and placed in Sutton Memorial Psychiatric Ward. During her stay... Why straight to the psychiatric ward? Probably something that you just did. Like, there's a runaway child and she's spouting all this stuff about Satan deflowering her. During her stay at the hospital, Susan told counsellors about her family life and regular beatings. When confronted with her daughter's allegations, Tracer claimed her daughter was lying and suffered from mental problems. No one questioned her answer and Susan was turned over to her mother. Like, yeah, sounds legit. Yeah. Oh, she's got mental problems. I'm not beating her. She was talking about the witches because we've never believed or done anything about witches before, ever in history. Oh, yeah. What a mad bastard. Once back home, Susan received one of the most severe beatings of her life. Tracer donned a pair of leather gloves and struck her daughter repeatedly. Afterwards, she forced the other children to join in. We had to pass the gloves from one another and hit Susan in the stomach for what she did to the family by running away and everything, Robert recalled. And I ha had to hit her twice because I didn't hit her hard enough the first time. Teresa didn't want her daughter running away again, so at night she would handcuff Susan to the bed and force the other children to take turns keeping watch over her. School was out of the question and Teresa did not permit her daughter to attend. Eventually, Teresa's torment broke Susan's will and she was allowed to sleep alone and unshackled. Apparently, the fear of another serious beating kept her in line. In 1982, Teresa got the wild notion that Susan was putting spells on her, forcing her to gain weight. Susan denied the allegations, but the protest fell upon deaf ears and Teresa flew into a violent rage. Fat be you, fat be you. <laughs> Before the children knew what was happening, they heard a single shot ring out. Susan began gasping and fell to the floor. Blood poured out of her chest and she was writhing in pain. Teresa had shot her own daughter with a twenty-two caliber pistol she once used to threaten Terry. After a brief pause, Teresa ordered the other children to carry the injured sister to the bathroom and place her in the tub. Don't suffer a witch to live. Yeah, you got to see if she floats, haven't she? Yeah. Teresa we did cut that out. <laughs> Teresa did not want the police involved, so an ambulance was out of the question. The bullet had not passed through Susan's body, but it was too deep to remove from an open wound. Teresa decided to leave it in and patched her daughter up with gauze and bandages. It'll be alright. For the next month, Susan's sisters looked after her. Terry and Sheila took turns feeding and bathing her, and eventually Susan recovered enough to rejoin the family. What the fuck? Yeah. She survived that? Yeah. And it's, it was still in there? In November 1983, Teresa and her children moved into an apartment in North Sacramento. Now, things were back to normal for a while, but then in July 1984, Teresa got into a heated argument with Susan and stabbed her daughter in the back with a pair of scissors. The injuries were not life-threatening, but serious nonetheless. Susan was getting tired of the daily abuse, and a few weeks later, she asked for permission to move out. Surprisingly... Teresa agreed, but there was one stipulation. Teresa wanted to remove the bullet that remained lodged in her daughter's back. Susan reluctantly agreed, 
and a few days later, the surgery began. Oh. Teresa started the operation by giving her daughter a handful of mellow capsules and a quart of hard liquor. The concoction worked, and before long, Susan was completely unconscious. Teresa then retrieved an exacto knife from the medicine cabinet and ordered 15-year-old Robert to cut into his sister's back and retrieve the bullet. Teresa barked orders from overhead as he made the incision. Before long, he had cut through several layers of skin and muscle tissue. Using his fingers, Robert searched around inside the wound until he finally located and removed the bullet. The next day, Susan woke up in horrible pain. Teresa gave her the antibiotics and ibuprofen, but the medicines didn't seem to have an effect and she kept getting worse. After a few days, her eyes turned yellow and she could no longer control her bowels. At one point, Terry noticed black marks on Susan's back, which she later concluded were from internal bleeding as a result of Teresa's latest beating. On July the 16th, 1984, Teresa duct taped Susan's mouth shut and bound her arms and legs. Afterwards, she packed all of the girls' belongings into trash bags and ordered Bill and Robert to put Susan in the car. They drove south on Highway 89 and eventually pulled off the road by Squares Creek Bridge. Bill and Robert were then ordered to take Susan out of the car and carry her down to the creek bank. Teresa brought down the garbage bags herself and then doused everything, including Susan, in gasoline and struck a match. Everyone made their way back to the car and no one looped back. Things around the Knorr house remained quiet and sullen during the weeks following Susan's death, but eventually everything went back to normal. What the fuck? On the morning of July the 17th, 1984, 45-year-old Mabel Harrison was driving on California's Highway 89 when she noticed a bright light illuminating the woods. Concerned that a fire had broken out, Mabel decided to investigate. From her vantage point on the interstate, Mabel wasn't sure what she was looking at, but she made her way down the rocky slope to get a closer look. A permeating stench stopped her. Alarmed, she ran back up to the incline and flagged down a truck. Robert Eden stopped his truck when he saw Mabel waving her arms. When she told him there was an unusual fire burning at the bottom of the hill, Eden grabbed his fire extinguisher and the two headed towards the source. After Eden doused the flames and smoke began to clear, he and Mabel discovered what appeared to be a charred human corpse. As soon as the reality of the situation hit him, Eden ran back to his truck and reported the grisly discovery to authorities on his CB radio. Emergency services personnel were already surrounding the area by the time Tahoe City detectives Russell Potts and Larry Adams arrived on the scene. After looking over the gruesome site, Potts requested the criminologist Michael Sags and place the county sheriff Donald J. Nunes be brought in. Within an hour, the four men were taking soil samples and photographing the area. The body was badly burnt and the lower portion of the victim's leg was detached and lying next to the body. The left arm was propped up on its elbow and the right arm was extended at the victim's side. The only part of the body that was not burnt was the left side of the victim's face. It was obvious that the victim was female. Her breasts, although severely charred, remained intact and visible. In all, investigators collected more than 30 pieces of evidence which they found on and around the body. Among the items catalogued, a green Pepsi donut toothbrush, a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, a yellow and black scarf, an underwire size 32C bra from JCPenney's, a black onyx bracelet, disposable diapers, a pair of hoop earrings, and several miscellaneous articles of clothing. After finishing up the crime scene, investigators dubbed the body Jane Doe number 4873-84 and sent it to the place of county morgue. 
Less than two hours later, forensic pathologist Dr. A.B. Kooner conducted the autopsy. The victim was between 18 and 22 years old, 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighing approximately 115 pounds. The body showed signs of abuse and there were two puncture wounds discovered on the victim's back. Discovery of an ovarian tumour indicated that Jane Doe had suffered a severe beating sometime prior to her death. Her physical injuries were life-threatening, but immediate cause of death was smoke inhalation. Fuck. So she was alive while they set fire to it, and she died from smoke inhalation. Following the autopsy, Jane Doe's fingers were removed and sent to Sacramento for prints. Her maxilla and mandible were also removed in case dental records surfaced. Investigators had few clues to go on and very little hope of discovering the identity of Jane Doe 4873-84. During late spring 1985, Teresa decided to supplement her small state-assisted income by having 20-year-old daughter Sheila work the streets as a prostitute. Sheila was horrified at her mother's plan, but she was also not going to disobey. Before long, Sheila was bringing home hundreds of dollars a day, and Teresa seemed almost proud of her daughter. She eased up on the daily beatings and Sheila was allowed to come and go as she pleased. In a twisted sense, becoming a prostitute had benefited Sheila. In May 1985, Sheila's freedom was brought to a sudden end. Teresa suspected that her daughter was pregnant and also accused her of venereal disease, which Teresa claimed to have gotten from using a toilet. Sheila was beaten black and blue before being hogtied and locked in a tiny closet next to the bathroom. It was excruciatingly hot within the closet, but Teresa left strict orders for the other children. The door was to be kept closed at all times, and they were not permitted to give her any food or water. She wanted Sheila to confess, Terry said years later. That was mother's way. Beat them until they confess. Sheila did eventually confess, but Teresa accused her of lying, and the punishment continued. On June the 21st, 1985, the third day of Sheila's incarceration, the family heard a loud thump coming from the closet. It was the last sound that they heard from Sheila. Three days later, when they opened the door, they discovered Sheila's decomposing body curled up in a fetal position. Apparently, she had tried to climb up some small shelves in the closet, but they would not hold her weight and she came crashing down. Teresa grabbed an old cardboard box and filled it with blankets and pillows. She ordered her two sons to place Sheila's remains inside and carry it out to the car. Everyone did as they were told and eventually they were driving up Interstate 80 towards the Truckee Airport. Along the way, Teresa spotted a small field and decided to pull off the road. She ordered the boys to unload her sister's cardboard casket and toss it into the weeds. A few hours after the box was dropped off, Alma Barber was making his usual rounds at Marty's Creek Campground and stumbled upon the homemade casket. His curiosity got the best of him and he lifted the flaps of the box open. What he saw inside would prove to haunt him for the rest of his life. Alma quickly notified the Nevada County Sheriff's Department and within hours the area was swarming with investigators. Nonetheless, they were unable to make a positive identification and they were very few clues to work with. The victim was dubbed Jane Doe 6607-85 and her cause of death was listed as undetermined. Tracer was extremely paranoid after Sheila's death and became concerned that the closet contained evidence which she might someday implicate her in her daughter's death. So on September the 29th, 1986, Teresa packed up all of the family's belongings and ordered Terry to set fire to the house. Using charcoal lighter fluid, Terry doused the floors and struck a match before climbing out of the side window. Regardless of Teresa's intent, neighbours immediately noticed the fire and the local fire department was dispatched to the scene. There was little damage done to their home and investigators had no doubt that the blaze had started deliberately. Teresa's children were all but grown up by the time she went into hiding. Howard, 26, wanted nothing more to do with his family and his brother, 24-year-old William, moved in with a girlfriend. Terry also left her mother. 
She was only 16 at the time, but using Sheila's identification, she was able to pass herself off as 21. Teresa's only remaining child, 19-year-old Robert Wallace Knorr, was the only one who stayed by her side when, and eventually, the two moved to Las Vegas. Things were going well in the beginning, but on November the 7th, 1991, Robert made a dreadful mistake. Desperate for money, he walked into Red's Palace, a bar on North Nellis Boulevard in Las Vegas, and pulled out a gun. The details remain sketchy, but in the end, the bartender, Robert Ward, was left dead at the foot of the bar. Investigators arrest Robert for the murder and was later sentenced to 16 years in jail. Teresa was nervous about all the attention, and a few weeks later, she moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. In 1992, Terry, who had since married, was watching an episode of America's Most Wanted. While none of the cases related to her or her family, they inspired her to do something right and she contacted Nevada authorities. Police Sergeant Ron Perrier of the Nevada County, California Sheriff's Office received the call. Terry told him that years earlier, her mother and two brothers killed her sister by dousing her with gasoline and setting her afire. The next year, she told them they killed her other sister and dumped her body in the mountains. Perrier was intrigued by the young woman's unbelievable tale and decided to interview her in person. The following day, Perrier met with Terry and interviewed her for several hours. He took his notes to the district attorney's office and a task force was assembled to check out the story. Investigators soon discovered the Jane Doe reports and everything started to fall into place. On November the 4th, 1993, investigators filed felony complaints against Teresa and two of her sons. William was found in Sacramento where he worked at a warehouse and lived in a peaceful neighbourhood. Investigators soon learned of Robert's previous arrest and found him in Nevada County Jail. Neither of the boys were interested in talking with investigators, but both eventually relented and confessed to their involvement in both of their sisters' deaths. Five days later, California investigators received a call from Salt Lake City authorities telling them that Teresa had been traced by a driver's license application. She had also been arrested just five days earlier for drunk driving. Sergeant John Fitzgerald of Placer County Sheriff's Office flew to Salt Lake and headed for the address listed on Teresa's license application. Just before nightfall, he knocked on the door. Surprisingly, Teresa answered without hesitation and then was then arrested. Investigators had acted not a moment too soon. Teresa was aware of the investigation and was in the process of packing up her belongings. Back at the police station, she refused to cooperate and requested a lawyer. Teresa was charged in the torture slayings of her two daughters and arraigned in a Salt Lake City courtroom on November 15th, 1993. According to articles in the Sacramento Bee, she was extradited to Placer County the following month, arraigned before Superior Court Judge J. Richard Cousins and charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder and two special circumstances, multiple murder and murder by torture, charges which could result in a death sentence. Teresa pleaded not guilty and was remanded into Sacramento County Jail. The same day, Judge Cousins ordered William and Robert Knorr to be prosecuted as adults. Robert eventually struck a deal with prosecutors and agreed to testify against Teresa in exchange for a lighter sentence. One month later, all charges against him, except a single count of conspiracy regarding Sheila's death, were dropped. When Teresa learned of the deal that Robert had made with the district attorney's office, she decided she did not take her chances with the death sentence and offered to plead guilty in exchange for her life. District Attorney John O'Mara agreed and on October 17th, 1995, Teresa changed her plea to guilty. During sentencing, Judge William R. Ridgway characterised Teresa's crimes as callousness beyond belief. He sentenced her to two consecutive life sentences and Teresa will be eligible for parole in 2027. If she lives to see it, she will be 80 years old. Robert, who was still serving out his murder charge in Nevada, was eventually sentenced to three years in state prison. Court ordered the sentence to run concurrently with his 1991 murder sentence. 
William was placed on probation for his role in the murders and ordered to undergo therapy. On April the 9th, 2003, the plain dealer at Cleveland, Ohio newspaper ran an article entitled Searching for Answers on Mothers Who Kill. According to the story, an American mother kills her child at the rate of once every three days. These cases are patterned and predictable, said Michelle Oberman, a legal scholar and expert on women who kill their offspring. They are not shocking, they are mundane. We just don't want to know what we know. And that ends the story of Trays and Noor. Wow. So, that was a gruesome one. and That was awful. I mean, the sons, I've got to kind of feel a bit sorry for him. Not for killing the killing the barman, but for like, getting along with the mum. She'd been fucking beating them and torturing them for fucking years. So, they knew they'd get the shit kicked out of them if they didn't help her with the body. So... Kind of got a bit of sympathy for him. She's a fucking horrible creature, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she reminds me of um, Gertrude Banachevsky from Sylvia Likens' case. Yeah, yeah. You know, just fucking callousness and... Words can't describe her, can it? Really. No, that's particularly vile. Like, some of the behaviours as well, like... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, like, her mum and dad, her family, like, breaking down, yeah, that probably affected it. That's no excuse for doing that to your fucking children. No, like, people, like, you're having divorced or separated parents, you know, it can't help that, but it's, there's people who've gone through parental divorce who were just like, mess me up, but they've not gone and, like, done that sort of shit. No, but her parents didn't get divorced, did her mum died, and her dad's got Parkinson's. No, I mean, like, comparatively. Oh, yeah, Like, a bad, like, a difficult home, like, environment. Yeah, it's, like ridiculous like what went on i mean yeah she had severe mental issues but like um, marcus park says on last podcast on the left um you know mental issues aren't your fault but they are your responsibility yeah you've got to manage them yeah you've got to manage them like it sucks that you have mental problems but they're like any other illness you have to treat them you if have you've got to a broken treat leg, them you know if you've got a broken leg you get that leg set and cast but then again it's like the american like sort of medical system and also um, like in the 60s 70s yeah you know where like mental illness didn't I really mean, exist in well, it did the, it did but it but didn't exist to like i'm not gonna get onto my reagan thing but you know sacramento mm. is in california just saying reagan closing them all because they were spending money on him fucking prick um but yeah thank you amy emma and jet that was nice i like how like young children are recommending the these cases to us amy's not young she looks young though because les said that earlier he was like oh amy looks really young so there you go amy yeah she does well you're young amy i know you're real age but you do i know you're real age (laughs) <laughs> that was such a fucking backhanded compliment Les. that was terrible but yeah guys if you do wish to have backhanded compliments from Les and get your cases on here you can do by going to patreon.com forward slash enter the dark subscribing a $10 tier or more and then you can choose a case for us to cover and get a backhanded compliment off Les. <laughs> you fucking prick yeah <laughs> God fucking hell, Les, you're a prick, aren't you? No wonder mm-hmm. women leave you. That was like that was a nice compliment from you as well. She's a young, but I know her real age. <laughs> Just saying, she was very sprightly for a woman of that age. Anyway, you 
fuck it. She's going to fucking kill you. Anyway, guys, if you do want to get in touch with us, you can do it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Email us on enterthedarkpodcast at gmail.com. The names of this, our patrons are going up right now. And remember to check out the merch store for all the cool shit that we've got. I'm Jan. He's Les. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.